Today, we're going to be talking about answering God's call on our life. And when you think about calling, what comes to your mind? Cell phones, right? And in our day and time, we most of us, if not all of us, have a cell phone. In fact, just the, over the weekend, Friday night, my wife always calls her mom and makes sure she gets home from the nursing home after being with, with her husband, with Marcia's dad, about eight or nine hours a day uh, there at the nursing home. And uh, Marcia couldn't get her on her cell phone. And there was a reason, because her mom had lost her cell phone there somewhere in, around the nursing home that Friday afternoon. At midnight, well, about 12.30, I hear something, and, and if Marcia's uh, uh, ringer for her mother is very unique. And uh, it is, your mom's calling. Oh, no, what does she want? Your mom's calling, and it gets louder and louder and louder. And when that happens at 12.30 at night, I'm bounding out, and, and we knew that Marcia had, Marcia's mom had lost her cell phone, and the only way that that's going to happen is if the cell phone, uh, somebody found her cell phone, either her mother, and her mother didn't realize it was 12.30 or that there was a problem, and so, and her, she charges her cell phone clear in the dining room. And so I am stumbling through the bedroom and through the kitchen into the dining room, and Marcia's asking me what's going on, and I said, it's your mom's ringer. And I get to the phone, and it quits ringing. And, uh, and Marcia gets in there, and she's, I said, surely whoever found her phone, even if it's your mother or whatever, is going to leave a message. And, but Marcia couldn't wait, so she calls the, the phone, and sure enough, it's the lady at the nursing home saying, hey, we found your mom's phone. There. Now, we all have cell phones, and I wanted to throw Marcia's mom's cell, th- cell phone uh, through, uh, through my house the other night, but uh, now, if you have one, and you have, you have the answering part set up there, some of you don't have your voice uh, mailboxes set up, and so it won't even let me leave a message there, but there's some generic messages that you hear. Marcia's mom is very unique. But here's one. I can answer my I can't answer my phone right now. Just leave a message at the beep and I'll get back with you as soon as possible. I don't know how what yours is set up, but I came across some very creative voicemail messages. Hi. Mark's voicemail is broken. This is his refrigerator. Please speak very slowly, and I'll stick your message to myself with one of those little magnets. Now, that's kind of a creative one. Here's another one. Hello, this is a telepathic thought recording device. At the beep, think about your name, your reason for calling, and number where I can reach you, and I'll think about returning your call. That's a pretty creative one. Here's another one. I can't answer my phone now because I have amnesia. And I feel awkward talking to people I don't remember. Please help me out by leaving my name and telling me something about myself. Thanks. And here's one that probably all of us have probably thought about doing. You know what I hate about voice messages. They go on and on, wasting your time. I mean, all they really need is to say, we aren't in, leave a message. That's why I've decided to keep mine simple and short. I pledge to you, my caller, that you will never have to suffer through another long answering machine message when you call me, beep. 
And then no one answers phone calls anymore. Send me a text. Isn't that a great one? That's exactly right. No one answers. No one wants to leave a message anymore. Just send me a text there. Now, as we follow the steps of Jesus through the book of Mark, he is beginning to launch his ministry, and he's building a team of disciples. Here in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, Jesus calls one of his disciples. This disciple is Levi, who later Jesus changes his name to Matthew there. And uh, I will tell you that, that now I'm beginning to get uh, excited about college football. They had a college football game on last night. They also had an NFL football game on. And this is, if you're following the NFL, you know that it is the third week of the preseason games. And during these games, you learn about the players as they come on to the field. And they always, the announcers always give you a little background about some of these new players. They'll say, they'll tell you what year or what round that they, the player was drafted uh, to, into the NFL. Now, when Jesus started his ministry, he selected 12 members that he drafted as first-round picks of his disciples, disciples there. Some observers, as you look at that, might have said that he made, uh, he made some good choices, but he made some kind of choices that was kind of iffy as well there. Because we have the rest of the story. We know what happened with Judas and we know what happened with some of the other disciples there. But let's see who he called with the scripture for today. In verses 13 and 14, we know that number one on your outline, that Jesus calls the seemingly unqualified to follow him. Levi, who was later known as Matthew, was a despised tax collector. He did not work for the Israeli Revenue Service. He didn't work for the IRS, but he did work for the IRS because he really worked for the infernal Roman service there because he was a servant of the Roman Empire. The Romans were the occupiers of Israel at this time, and, and the tax collector had to deliver a certain amount of revenue to the Romans, and his salary that he collected was anything that he received beyond above and beyond that amount. So every month, Matthew, Levi, had to collect a certain amount of taxes. And he didn't have a, he didn't, they didn't say that's all you could collect. They said if you want to make a living, you need to collect a little bit more on top there. So he could charge this exorbitant amount uh, that, uh, whatever it was that he wanted to, to charge. And he also had Roman soldiers standing beside him to make sure that his authority was enforced at that time. Now, to understand how much the Jews hated tax collectors, let's compare it to what happened during World War II. If you go to World War II and you begin to look at the when the Germans began to occupy France there, some of the French citizens sympathized and they began to work for the Germans. Now, the French people hated these traitors. And after the Allies liberated the French, their France, the German sympathizers, they were punished. If you remember any of the stories about that, if you were a lady uh, there living in France and you began to 
uh, to fraternize with the Germans, guess what they did with you? They shaved their heads. They cut off all of their hair, and these women had to walk around for however long it was to, uh, and, and the men, they didn't get their heads shaved. They were just ostracized from everything else, and that's how, and they were hated by the French. Now, that's how much the Jews hated tax collectors like Levi there. They spat on the ground when they walked by. When they saw them, they just stopped and spit right there. That's how much they despised tax collectors. And one day, Jesus approached the tax booth, and I can imagine the crowds thinking, oh boy, here we go. Jesus is going to give that dirty tax collector a piece of his mind. But instead, Jesus walked up and he said only two words to Levi. Follow me. That's what he said to him there. The Bible says that Levi got up and he followed Jesus Christ. Now, the tense of the verb indicates there in the Greek that Matthew did it instantly. He didn't say something like this. Let me think about it. Let me tie up some loose ends. Let me make sure I get enough money in case this falls through that I can fall back in on that. But he left everything the Scripture says and he followed Jesus Christ. Now, according to, to theologians, as you begin to study this, he didn't leave everything. He did take one thing with him. Do you know what he took? He took his writing pen with him. Matthew, tax collectors had to be able to read and write. And so we know that Matthew was able to read and write. But Matthew took his pen and he wrote perhaps the most detailed of all of the Gospels, the four Gospel accounts, if you read about it in, in the first Gospel in Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. And Jesus is still calling out Levi's to follow him. Now, he's not only calling Levi's out, he's also calling Wrangler's out too. Ah, some of you got it. All right. Okay, there. But he's calling you and I out as well there. When you think about the makeup of the 12 disciples, he had a very diverse group, didn't he? In fact, he had some fishermen, he had some farmers. He also had a disciple called Simon the Zealot. A more literal translation would be Simon the Terrorist. That's how we would put it today. Simon was part of a group of insurgents called Zealots who carried out random acts of violence against the Romans there. And so he had Levi, who was a Roman agent. He had Simon the Zealot on the same team. Now that would be like Rush Limbaugh, and Bill Maher sharing the same radio microphone in our day and time. In fact, can you imagine, in addition, Jesus chose Judas, who was a wolf in sheep's clothing, and he had a lot of variety on his first 12 team members. Now, on paper, Levi, Simon, Judas wouldn't seem to be very qualified, but that's the wonderful thing about Jesus Christ, isn't it? He doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And I don't know about you, but I, I don't qualify either. It's not because of me. It's because of him. Jesus is calling you to follow him today. Your immediate reaction might be something like this. Well, who me? Who? Why me? Why would you call me Jesus Christ? And that's the perfect response that Jesus is looking for. Let's take a poll this morning. You ready for it? Now, you're going to have to follow me, and you're going to have to listen to me, okay? So some of you got to wake up, all right? 
Here you go. How many of you have ever been on a dean's list, the National Honor Society, or you graduated with honors? Let me see your hand. Keep them up. Don't put them down, all right? How many of you have ever been named all city or all county or all district or all state in any sport? Raise your hand. Keep them up. There's some more there. How many of you have ever been named to any kind of who's who's list? Raise your hand. My, my hand goes up. All right there. Anyone voted most likely to succeed? Right. Keep your hand up. Don't put them down. Keep them up there. How many of you received any kind of military medal or civil or civic achievement award? Raise your hand. Keep them up there. Now, let me just look at this crowd. You guys, we guys are pretty special, right? Okay, there. I've got good news for you. God can still use you. Now you can put your hand down. All right, there. Now, he can still use you, but he's going to have to work a little harder with you. Now, if you didn't raise your hand for any of that, you are a great candidate for God's draft pick. He wants you there today. The Bible explains it in 1 Corinthians there that's up on your screen there. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, uh, 26 and 21 there. So uh, chapter 1 as well. And it says, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise for a, a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God's chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God's chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God's chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing, what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. Notice it doesn't say any of you who are wise or influential or noble by human standards. The Bible says not many of you, not any of you, but not many of you. Now, I thank God for every All-American, every Hall of Famer, every Phi Kappa, Beta Kappa, or whatever you might have been there who loves Jesus Christ. But I thank God for every professional sports person, also like Tim Tebow's and Bubba Watson's, and you can name a bunch of them, who aren't afraid to talk about God faithfully in the public eye there. But let me just tell you, God can use those super achievers, but he just has to work a little harder. The Bible says God chooses the lowly and the despised things so that no one may boast before him. Just last night, I was watching a preseason football game, NFL, on, on, the, the, on the television. It was the New Orleans Saints and the L.A. Chargers, not the San Diego Chargers anymore, but the L.A. Chargers. And they interviewed a young man in the fourth quarter that was on the sidelines. That was a, it was an interesting story. His right leg, he was missing it. It was missing from about his knee down there. This high school kid has just been fitted for two prosthetics. One just, just walked normally in, and then one for a sporting event. This, high, this kid that's missing... The bottom of his right leg is getting ready to begin to play high school baseball. And with that new prosthetic, that sports one they got now, 
what what's so significant about the story was the announcers were talking about Drew Brees, the quarterback for the New Orleans Saints. Drew Brees is a believer. He talks about the Lord a lot. I'll just tell you that Drew Brees' organization, his his uh, his special organization that he has, that they were going to pay for these two prosthetics for this young man. And so they kept showing Drew Brees. But when they interviewed the high school kid, that's what got my attention. And the high school kid began to talk there. And this, the story quickly became not about Drew Brees, but about the young man and his determination. And let me just tell you, I believe that God delights in the ordinary and the unqualified to express his glory. And with that, you may be thinking, you're unqualified. That high school kid, he, he never thought that he would ever be able to play baseball again. But yeah, they talked about Drew Brees, but it's not about Drew Brees. It becomes about that young kid. They're becoming, having the, the, the determination to play, uh, to play high school baseball there. Now, let me just tell you, if you think you're unqualified, I've got one word for you today. You ready for it? Great. Like Tony the Tiger, great. Because that's exactly who God's looking for is the unqualified there. Now, a woodpecker was pecking away at a tree in the forest one day, and suddenly a lightning bolt flashed down and split that tree right down the middle, just as that woodpecker had hit that with his beak. And the stunned woodpecker flew over to some of his buddies and said, there it is, look what I did. And you know what? That's just like us, isn't it? We'd like to take all the credit when God deserves all the credit, amen? In fact, when you look at your life and you see what God has done in your life, don't you take the credit for it. Let God have the credit. Number two, Jesus calls the social outcasts to have fellowship with him in verse 15. The first thing that Levi did was throw a party and invite Jesus there. Some people want to think that the Christian life is a somber, solemn, straight-laced experience that has to be endured. Now, Jesus taught us that the Christian life is, is happy and joyous and an, and an abundant experience that needs to be enjoyed there. In other words, the Christian life isn't, it, well, it's like a feast. It's not like a funeral. Now, folks, I'll tell you, I've been at a lot of funerals here lately. The last two or three weeks, I'm telling you, we've had more funeral services than we've had church services in this room. And I will tell you that there's somber, somber experiences there. But I will tell you the Christian life isn't like a funeral. The Christian life is like a feast. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 15, in verse 10, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. I tell the folks all the time when somebody gives their life to Christ, I don't want the angels to have all the fun of rejoicing. And that's why I encourage you to, to celebrate when somebody comes to Christ or when somebody gets baptized. We ought to be having a party, amen, church? We ought to be the ones having an exciting time. And Levi invited his fellow tax collectors and other sinners to his party. But, and Matthew hosted a supper for sinners. He wanted to bring his friends into his home so they could meet Jesus. Now, do you have a burden to introduce your friends to Jesus? 
You, now, you may have said something like this. Preacher, I've tried to bring my friends to church so that they'd have an opportunity to come to Jesus. And they won't come to church. What can I do? Let me tell you what you can do. Try using your home as a safe place where they can join you for a meal and then you can tell them more about Jesus Christ. Some of you have never invited your lost friends into your home there. I can tell you, I've, I know the ones that I have invited people into my home, and I can tell you, I know the folks that I've been able. I, I have them right here. I know exactly, and some of them I still know the exact date of when they came into our home and came and had supper with us, and I was able to lead them, or Marsha was able to lead them to the Lord. Those are exciting moments in our home when we can, can do that. And you can do that. You, you can invite them in. Give them a great meal. Don't give them a sorry meal, you know. Don't burn the, the chicken and dumplings and say, I'm sorry, but do whatever. Give them a great meal. And then just casually, as you're sitting around the table, talk, begin to talk about the things of Christ there. Now, let me tell you, you don't have to force the gospel down their throats. Try offering good food instead. It's a lot easier to swallow. The folks, they'll listen to you if you go, man, give them, give them banana pudding. Give them chocolate, German chocolate cake. Man, and then give them the gospel. It's a lot easier to share then. But you know how to do it? You don't even have to force it. You know what you need to do? Pray before the meal. Invite the Lord to be present with you in that place. And in the course of the conversation, talk about your love for the church and your love for God. Be real, but be tactful about it. Have fun. Let them know that you can be a Christian and still have fun. And when you read the Gospels carefully, you discover if you, that Jesus felt more at home. Look at this and see if I'm not telling you the truth here. Look at Jesus. every experience that Jesus had in the four Gospels especially. And see where Jesus seemed to be at home more. He, he went to the synagogues. He preached. He taught. But I will tell you, do you know where you see him more relaxed and seemed to be more uh, able to share the gospel? It was when he was sitting around the table with a bunch of misfits, and he did, and not with all the religious snobs. The religious snobs were sitting outside watching him and trying to... to now, remember that the Pharisees criticized John the Baptist because he practiced abstention. He didn't want to eat certain things and, and do certain things. And then they began to criticize Jesus because he was just the opposite there. He loved to hang out with the misfits and to party with them there. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 33 and 34. It's there on the screen. There, it's on your outline. John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They could, nobody could make these guys happy at all there. And I'm going to make a statement right now that might raise a few eyebrows, and it might even generate a few emails as well to me. But this is what I'm going to say. I believe if Jesus came to Tucumcari, New Mexico for one day, just one day, Jesus chose to come, physically to come to Tucumcari, New Mexico. I do not believe that he would show up here at First Baptist Church or Center Street Methodist Church 
or the First Assembly of God or any other church in our community, you know where I think we would find Jesus? Down at the local taverns, the powwow, the TriStar Inn. Do you know why? Have you ever thought about it? Because we already know him. We love him. He's the kind of shepherd, the Bible says, leaves the 99 and goes after the one lost sheep, that one lost lamb that is in danger. In the book written by Barbara Taylor entitled Gospel Medicine, she agrees with what I just said. She writes, if Jesus were putting together a sinner's table today at the local Denny's, it might include a child molester, a garbage collector, a young man with AIDS, a migrant farm worker, a a teenage crack addict, a motorcycle gang member, an unmarried woman on welfare with five children by three different fathers. Did I miss anyone, she asked. As you picture this, don't forget to put Jesus at the head of the table asking the young mother to hand him a roll, please. You see, I think that's, we would think, oh, he's going to come see us. We're not lost, hopefully. He's going to go after that one lost sheep. And I want to take her quote, Barbara Taylor's quote, a little farther. Imagine you're sitting at a table with a group of clean, well-dressed Christians. You've all joined hands to pray over your meal, and you quietly discuss what the preacher said that morning in his sermon. However, there's a lot of noise coming from the other table next to you and makes the conversation at our table, your table, difficult. Your other friends leave and you notice that there's an empty seat at the table with the loud, loud sinners next door to you there. The guy with the beard at the head of the table turns his piercing eyes and looks right through you and he pushes out the chair and he says something like, would you like to join us? What would you do? What would you do? Oh, pastor, if I knew that Jesus was there, of course I'd sit down. But just remember what Jesus told us. Inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. Folks, those are the very kind of people that Jesus loves. And if those are the kind of people that Jesus loves, that he spent time with them and ate and drank with them and talked with them, if you're going to be the church that the Lord Jesus wants and wants to be part of, then you're going to, well, let me just put it this way. We're going to have to be more like Jesus than the religious snobs. We're going to have to be more like Jesus. And then brings us to point number three. Jesus calls the spiritually unhealthy to follow him in verses 16 and 17. Let's crash Levi's party for just a second. There's laughter, there's music, the smell of great food, there's a lot of conversation going on. Jesus is the center of attention. He's telling stories to these publicans and these prostitutes are laughing. And meanwhile, outside the door, there's the posse of the religious snoots there. They are the self-appointed righteous police who have been following Jesus around, looking for opportunities to criticize him. Now remember, let's go back just a few verses in chapter 2. These are the same guys that were in that crowded house where the paralytic man was lowered and who said, this is blasphemy. 
Who can forgive sins except God? And now they're looking at this party, and they're complaining to Jesus' disciples that there was no way that this man could be the Messiah because he's eating with tax collectors and with sinners. And Jesus indicated that he came to earth for the same reason that a doctor spends his or her lifetime in a hospital. Jesus came to help sinners. You know, there is a disease worse than cancer and more debilitating than MS. It's a spiritual sickness called sin. And if we don't receive the cure for this, we don't just die, we die eternally. But the good news is that Dr. Jesus has the cure for our sin sickness. And Jesus, who's full of love and grace, in the most of the things that he says, he was always full of it and full of grace. But there's one particular group that became the target of his barbed sarcasm. They were the super hyper religious Pharisees. They were more concerned with the outward appearance and goodness than the inner righteousness. And listen to what Jesus says to these guys or what he might say about you and me. Look in Matthew chapter 23, verses 24 through 28. And listen to him, and can you even hear maybe his tone? Jesus said, you blind guys. I think Jesus had a sense of humor. Can you, can you hear him saying this? You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then outside will also be clean. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like a whitewashed tomb, which looks beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're just full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Brendan Manning, Manning, I should say, he's the author of the, of the book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. He reminds us, and in fact, I have the movies of Brendan Manning. He's got two movies out about talking about the Ragamuffin Gospel, and then he has another one that builds on to it. But this is what he says in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. Jesus comes not for the super spiritual, but for the wobbly and the weak need who know they don't have it all together, and who are not too proud to accept the the handout of amazing grace. Something is radically wrong when the local church rejects a person who who is accepted by Jesus. And any church that will not accept that, uh, it consists of sinful men and sinful women and exists only for them and implicitly rejects the gospel of grace. Becoming a Christian can be summarized into three words, church. Do you know what they are? I didn't put them down, but you might want to write them down. Admit, submit, and commit. Jesus is the doctor of those of us who are suffering from the faithful, fatal sin of sickness and disease called sin. Before you'll ever go to a doctor, you got to admit you have a problem, Right? And some of you have problems and you won't even go to a doctor there. But before you go to a doctor, you need to 
Make sure you admit you got a problem. Before you see Dr. Jesus, you got to admit that you're a sinner. Then you submit to the doctor's care. You must submit your wounded heart to the healer. Then you have to commit yourself to the doctor's plan. You need to take your medicine every day or follow the treatment regimen every day. You've got to commit to be committed to the cure. In the same way, you've got to commit to follow Jesus every day. As I conclude, G. Campbell Morgan, the great British pastor, tells a story about a prostitute from the red light district of London. She picked up a track one time about Jesus and she was touched what she read inside that track. And she wanted to know more and so she showed up at an Anglican church the very next Sunday with her two children. And the identity of the fathers of her her two children, she did not know. She knew she was supposed to dress up, but her silken finery wasn't exactly like the other women in the church of that day. And when she sat down, it was as if she and her family had a plague and people began to scamper away. She came the next Sunday and people began to whisper loudly about her reputation so not only could she hear but her children could hear as well and on the third Sunday the pastor met her at the door and said our members have decided that you should not come here anymore you're upsetting them and with tears in her eyes she asked the pastor this question where can I go where they accept sinners like me He didn't have an answer for her. But as you continue to read the story, and if you know the story, you know that she found the Salvation Army. And the Salvation Army accepted her and her children there. And she accepted Christ there and became a great servant of Christ. There's a great old hymn that we don't sing a lot of times, but I want you to listen to the words. Sinners... Jesus will receive. Sound this word of grace to all who the heavenly pathway leave. All who linger, all who fall. And you might remember this, sing it over and over again. Christ receiveth sinful men. Make the message clear and plain. Christ receiveth sinful men. And because Jesus received sinners... First Baptist Church, we should also. You say, oh, we do. Oh, do we? I can't tell you how many times I hear stories about people when I go and visit them. And they said, you know, Pastor, we went or we, we, we had an experience where this happened to us or this person said this to us. And I'll just tell you, I... I can't tell you how many times I have left a place like that and sat in my pickup and could not drive away because I was crying so much because of what I just heard that someone said this. And it's not just at First Baptist. Let me just say, at every church that I have ever pastored, there's been an occasion where I have heard, I've gone in and visited someone, and they said, you know what? I'm not ever going to go back because of what so-and-so said to me. If Jesus received sinful men and women, church,
church, we don't have a right not to receive them either. And I'll just tell you, if Jesus came back for just a day, would he come see us? He'd be busy going after the lost of this world. Father, we come to you today and we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would just bless the teaching of your word today. May it have challenged us to go after the lost. To know that when Jesus called, he called those that maybe we wouldn't have called. Help us to have your eyes and your ears, Lord, and your heart. Help us to go after those. Help us not to say things when people that have have sinned or made mistakes or done whatever they've done, and they know what they've done. We don't have to be the Holy Spirit. Help us to be your church, to open up our arms and to love people and not to be criticizers. May we not be the Pharisees standing out and looking, even trying to find something wrong with Jesus. I can't imagine. I can't imagine what that was like. And yet we do it every day, Lord. We judge. We shy away from those who may not be quite like us or have problems different than us help us to be an open door and it's in your precious name we pray my my question to you today is if you've never invited Christ into your life would you come to Jesus today open arms Christ receiveth simple men as the old hymn said and women and there's none of us in this room. Paul said, as, as Nathan said earlier, that he was the chief priest. We could all chief sinners, chiefest of sinners. We're all there, right? None of us are without spot or blemish. So you come. The altar's here. You come and do whatever.